Section 16 of Ulysses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ulysses by James Joyce. Part 2. The Odyssey. Episode 9. Scylla and Charybdis. Part 3. Pretty country folk had few chattels then, John Eglinton observed, as they have still if our peasant plays are true to type. He was a rich country gentleman, Stephen said, with a coat of arms and landed estate at Stratford, and a house in Ireland Yard, a capitalist shareholder, a bill promoter, a tithe farmer. Why did he not leave her his best bed if he wished her to snore away the rest of her nights in peace? It is clear that there were two beds, a best and a second best, Mr. Second Best Best said finally. Separatio a mensa et a thalamo, bettered Buck Mulligan, and was smiled on. Antiquity mentions famous beds, second England and puckered, bed smiling. Let me think. Antiquity mentions that Stygerite school urchin and bald heathen sage, Stephen said, who, when dying in exile, frees and endows his slaves, pays tribute to his elders, wills to be laid in earth near the bones of his dead wife, and bids his friends be kind to an old mistress, don't forget Nell Gwyn her pillis, and let her live in his villa. "'Do you mean he died so?' Mr. Best asked with slight concern. "'I mean—' "'He died dead drunk,' Buck Mulligan capped. "'A quart of ale is a dish for a king. "'Oh, I must tell you what Dowden said.' "'What?' asked Best Eglinton. "'William Shakespeare and Company, Limited. "'The People's William. "'For terms, apply. "'E. Dowden, Highfield House.' "'Lovely,' Buck Mulligan suspired amorously. "'I asked him what he thought of the charge of pederasty brought against the bard.' He lifted his hands and said, All we can say is that life ran very high in those days. Lovely! Catamite. The sense of beauty leads us astray, said beautiful sadness, best to ugling Eglinton. Steadfast John replied severe. The doctor can tell us what those words mean. You cannot eat your cake and have it. Sayest thou so? Will they wrest from us, from me, the palm of beauty? And the sense of property, Stephen said. He drew Shylock out of his own long pocket. The son of a malt-jobber and money-lender, he was himself a corn-jobber and money-lender with ten tods of corn hoarded in the famine riots. His borrowers are no doubt those diverse of worship mentioned by Chettle Falstaff, who reported his uprightness of dealing. He sued a fellow-player for the price of a few bags of malt and extracted his pound of flesh and interest for every money lent. How else could Aubrey's ostler and cowboy get rich quick? All events brought grist to his mill. Shylock chimes with the Jew-baiting that followed the hanging and quartering of the Queen's leech Lopez, his Jew's heart being plucked forth while the Sheeny was yet alive. Hamlet and Macbeth with the coming to the throne of a Scotch philofaster with a turn for witch-roasting. The lost armada is his jeer in love's labor lost. His pageants, the histories, sail full-bellied on a tide of Maeve King enthusiasm. Warwickshire Jesuits are tried, and we have a porter's theory of equivocation. The sea venture comes home from Bermudas, and the play Renan admired is written with Patsy Caliban, our American cousin. The sugared sonnets follow Sidney's. As for Fay Elizabeth, otherwise Carity Bess, the gross virgin who inspired the merry wives of Windsor, let some mine hair from Almany grope his lifelong for deep-hid meanings in the depths of the buck-basket. I think you're getting on very nicely, 
just mix up a mixture of theological, philological, mingo, minxie, mictum, mingere. Prove that he was a Jew, John Eglinton dared, expectantly. Your dean of studies holds he was a holy Roman. Suflaminandus sum. He was made in Germany, Stephen replied, as the champion of French polisher of Italian scandals. A myriad-minded man, Mr. Bess reminded. Coleridge called him myriad-minded. Amplius. In societate humana hoc est maxime necessarium ut sit amicitia inter multos. St. Thomas, Stephen began. Ora pro nobis, Monk Mulligan groaned, sinking to a chair. There he keened a wailing rune. Pogue Mahone, Ashula Macri, it's destroyed we are from this day, it's destroyed we are surely. All smiled their smiles. St. Thomas, Stephen smiling said, whose gore-bellied works I enjoy reading in the original, writing of incest from a standpoint different from that of the new Viennese school Mr. McGee spoke of, likens it in his wise and curious way to an avarice of the emotions. He means that the love so given to one near in blood is covetously withheld from some stranger who, it may be, hungers for it. Jews, whom Christians tax with avarice, are of all races the most given to intermarriage. Accusations are made in anger. The Christian laws which built up the horde of the Jews, for whom, as for the Lollards, storm was shelter, bound their affections too with hoops of steel. Whether these be sins or virtues, old Nobodaddy will tell us at Doomsday Leet. But a man who holds so tightly to what he calls his rights over what he calls his debts will hold tightly also to what he calls his rights over her whom he calls his wife. No sir-smile neighbor shall covet his ox or his wife or his manservant or his maidservant or his jackass. Or his jennyass, Buck Mulligan antiphoned. Gentle will is being roughly handled, gentle Mr. Best said gently. Which will, gagged sweetly Buck Mulligan, we are getting mixed. The will to live, John Englinton philosophized, for poor Anne, Will's widow, is the will to die. Requiescat, Stephen prayed. What of all the will to do? It has vanished long ago. She lies laid out in stark stiffness in that second-best bed, the mobled queen, even though you proved that a bed in those days was as rare as a motor-car is now, and that its carvings were the wonder of seven parishes. In old age she takes up with gospelers. One stayed with her at New Place and drank a quart of sack the town council paid for, but in which bed he slept it skills not to ask, and heard she had a soul. She read, or had read, to her his chapbooks, referring them to the merry wives, and, loosing her nightly waters on the Jordan, she thought over hooks and eyes for believers' breeches, and the most spiritual snuff-box to make the most devout souls sneeze. Venus has twisted her lips in prayer, agonbite of inwit, remorse of conscience. It is an age of exhausted whoredom groping for its god. History shows that to be true, inquit Eglintonus chronologus. The ages succeed one another, but we have it on high authority that a man's worst enemies shall be those of his own house and family. I feel that Russell is right. What do we care for his wife or father? I should say that only family poets have family lives. Falstaff was not a family man. I feel that the fat knight is his supreme creation. Lean, he lay back. Shy, deny thy kindred, the unco guid. Shy, supping with the godless, he sneaks the cup. A sire in Altonian antrum baited him. 
visits him here on quarter days. Mr. McGee, sir, there's a gentleman to see you. Me? Says he's your father, sir. Give me my words worth. Enter McGee Moore Matthew, a rugged, rough, rug-headed kern in strossers with a buttoned codpiece, his nether stocks bemired with clauber of ten forests, a wand of wilding in his hand. Your own? He knows your old fellow, the widower. Hurrying to her squalid death lair from gay Paris on the quayside, I touched his hand. The voice, new warmth, speaking. Dr. Bob Kenny is attending her. The eyes that wish me well, but do not know me. A father, Stephen said, battling against hopelessness, is a necessary evil. He wrote the play in the months that followed his father's death. If you hold that he, a graying man with two marriageable daughters, with thirty-five years of life, nel mezzo del camin di nostra vita, with fifty of experience, is the beardless undergraduate from Wittenberg, then you must hold that his seventy-year-old mother is the lustful queen. No, the corpse of John Shakespeare does not walk the night. From hour to hour it rots and rots. He rests, disarmed of fatherhood, having devised that mystical estate upon his son. Boccaccio's Calandrino was the first and last man who felt himself with child. Fatherhood, in the sense of conscious begetting, is unknown to man. It is a mythical estate, an apostolic succession, from only begetter to only begotten. On that mystery and not on the Madonna which the cunning Italian intellect flung to the mob of Europe, the church is founded, and founded irremovably because founded, like the world, macro and microcosm, upon the void, upon incertitude, upon unlikelihood. Amor matrice, subjective and objective genitive, may be the only true thing in life. Paternity may be a legal fiction. Who is the father of any son, that any son should love him, or he any son? What the hell are you driving at? I know. Shut up. Blast you. I have reasons. Amplius. Adhuc. Iterum. Postea. Are you condemned to do this? They are sundered by a bodily shame so steadfast that the criminal annals of the world, stained with all other incests and bestialities, hardly record its breach. Sons with mothers, sires with daughters, lesbic sisters, loves that dare not speak their name, nephews with grandmothers, jailbirds with keyholes, queens with prize bulls. The son unborn mars beauty. Born he brings pain, divides affection, increases care. He is a new male. His growth is his father's decline, his youth his father's envy, his friend his father's enemy. In Rue Monsieur le Prince, I thought it. What links them in nature, an instant of blind rut? Am I a father, if I were? Shrunken, uncertain hand. Sibelius, the African, subtlest heresiarch of all the beasts of the field, held that the father was himself his own son. The bulldog of Aquin, with whom no word shall be impossible, refutes him. Well, if the father who has not a son be not a father, can the son who has not a father be a son? When Rutland, Bacon, Southampton, Shakespeare, or another poet of the same name in the Comedy of Errors wrote Hamlet, he was not the father of his own son merely, but, being no more a son, he was and felt himself the father of all his race, the father of his own grandfather, the father of his unborn grandson, who, by the same token, never was born, for nature, as Mr. McGee understands her, abhors perfection. 
Eglintone eyes, quick with pleasure, looked up shy brightly, gladly glancing a merry Puritan through the twisted Eglantine. Flatter. Rarely, but flatter. Himself his own father, son Mulligan told himself. Wait, I am big with child. I have an unborn child in my brain. Pallas Athena, a play. The play's the thing. Let me parturiate. He clasped his paunch brow with both birth-aiding hands. As for his family, Stephen said, his mother's name lives in the forest of Arden. Her death brought from him the scene with Volumnia in Coriolanus. His boy-son's death is the death scene of young Arthur in King John. Hamlet, the black prince, is Hamnet Shakespeare. Who the girls in the Tempest and Pericles in Winter's Tale are, we know. Who Cleopatra, flesh-pot of Egypt, and Cressid and Venus are, we may guess. But there is another member of his family who is recorded. The plot thickens, John Eglinton said. The Quaker librarian, quaking, tiptoed in, quake, his mask, quake, with haste, quake, quack. Door closed, cell, day. They list, three, they. I, you, he, they. Come, mess, Stephen. He had three brothers, Gilbert, Edmund, Richard. Gilbert, in his old age, told some cavaliers he got a pass for nout, what from Master Gatherer one time mass he did, and he seen his brood maester wool the playwriter up in London in a wrestling play wood a man's on's back. The playhouse sausage filled Gilbert's soul. He is nowhere, but an Edmund and a Richard are recorded in the works of Sweet William. Maggie Glyn John. Names. What's in a name? Best. That is my name, Richard, don't you know? I hope you are going to say a good word for Richard, don't you know, for my sake. Laughter. Buck Mulligan, piano, diminuendo. Then outspoke Medical Dick to his comrade, Medical Davy. Stephen. In his trinity of black wills, the villain Shakebags, Iago, Richard Crookback, Edmund, and King Lear, two bear the wicked uncle's names. Nay, that last play was written or being written while his brother Edmund lay dying in Southwark. Best. I hope Edmund is going to catch it. I don't want Richard, my name. Laughter. Quaker Leicester, a tempo. But he that filches from me my good name. Stephen, stringendo. He has hidden his own name, a fair name, William, in the plays. A super here, a clown there, as a painter of old Italy set his face in a dark corner of his canvas. He has revealed it in the sonnets where there is will in overplus. Like John O'Gaunt, his name is dear to him as dear as the coat and crest he toadied for, on a bend, a sable, a spear, or steeled argent, honorific abilitude in natatibus, dearer than his glory of greatest shake scene in the country. What's in a name? That is what we ask ourselves in childhood when we write the name that we are told is ours. A star, a day-star, a fire-drake, rose at his birth. It shone by day in the heavens alone, brighter than Venus in the night, and by night it shone over Delta in Cassiopeia the recumbent constellation, which is the signature of his initial, among the stars. His eyes watched it, low-lying on the horizon, eastward of the bear, as he walked by the slumberous summer fields at midnight returning from Shottery and from her arms. Both satisfied. I, too. Don't tell them he was nine years old when it was quenched. And from her arms. Wait to be wooed and won. I, Meacock, who will woo you? Read the skies. Auto Timoruminus, Bostephanamunus. Where's your configuration? Stephen, Stephen, cut the bread even. S. D. Sua Dona. 
Gia di lui, gelindo, resolve di non amare, S.D. What is that, Mr. Dedalus? the Quaker librarian asked. Was it a celestial phenomenon? A star by night, Stephen said, a pillar of the cloud by day. What more's to speak? Stephen looked on his hat, his stick, his boots. Stephanos, my crown, my sword. His boots are spoiling the shape of my feet. Buy a pair. Holes in my socks. Handkerchief, too. You make good use of the name, John Eglinton allowed. Your own name is strange enough. I suppose it explains your fantastical humor. Me, McGee and Mulligan. Fabulous artificer. The hawk-like man. You flew. Where to? New Haven, Dieppe. Steerage passenger. Paris and back. Lapwing. Icarus. Pater, Ait. Sea bedabbled. Fallen. Weltering. Lapwing you are. Lapwing be. Mr. Best eagerly, quietly lifted his book to say, That's very interesting, because that brother motive, don't you know, we find also in the old Irish myths, just what you say, the three brothers Shakespeare. In Grimm, too, don't you know, the fairy tales, the third brother that always marries the sleeping beauty and wins the best prize. Best of best brothers. Good, better, best. The Quaker librarian spring-halted near. I should like to know, he said, which brother you... Well, I understand you to suggest there was misconduct with one of the brothers, but perhaps I am anticipating. He caught himself in the act, looked at all, refrained. An attendant from the doorway called, Mr. Leister, Father Deneen wants... Oh, Father Deneen, directly. Swiftly, rectly, creaking, rectly, rectly, he was rectly gone. John Eglinton touched the foil. Come, he said, let us hear what you have to say of Richard and Edmund. You kept them for the last, didn't you? In asking you to remember those two noble kinsmen, Uncle Richie and Uncle Edmund, Stephen answered, I feel I am asking too much, perhaps. A brother is as easily forgotten as an umbrella. Lapwing. Where is your brother? Apothecary's Hall. My whetstone. Him, then Cranley. Mulligan. Now these. Speech, speech. But act. Act speech. They mock to try you. Act. Be acted on. Lapwing. I am tired of my voice, the voice of Esau, my kingdom for a drink. On. You will say those names were already in the chronicles from which he took the stuff of his plays. Why did he take them rather than others? Richard, a whore-son crookback, misbegotten, makes love to a widowed Anne, what's in a name? Woos and wins her, a whore-son merry widow. Richard the Conqueror, third brother, came after William the Conquered. The other four acts of that play hang limply from that first. Of all his kings, Richard is the only king unshielded by Shakespeare's reverence, the angel of the world. Why is the underplot of King Lear, in which Edmund figures, lifted out of Sidney's Arcadia and spatchcocked onto a Celtic legend older than history? That was Will's way, John Eglinton defended. We should not now combine a Norse saga with an excerpt from a novel by George Meredith. Que voulez-vous? Moore would say. He puts Bohemia on the seacoast and makes Ulysses quote Aristotle. Why, Stephen answered himself, because the theme of the false or the usurping or the adulterous brother or all three in one is to Shakespeare what the poor are not, always with him. The note of banishment, banishment from the heart, banishment from home, sounds uninterruptedly from the two gentlemen of Verona onward till Prospero breaks his staff, buries its certain fathoms in the earth and drowns his book. It doubles itself in the middle of his life, reflects itself in another, 
repeats itself. Protasis, epitasis, catastasis, catastrophe. It repeats itself again when he is near the grave, when his married daughter Susan, chip of the old block, is accused of adultery. But it was the original sin that darkened his understanding, weakened his will, and left in him a strong inclination to evil. The words are those of my lord's bishops of Maynooth, an original sin, and, like original sin, committed by another in whose sin he too has sinned. It is between the lines of his last written words, it is petrified on his tombstone under which her four bones are not to be laid. Age has not withered it, beauty and peace have not done it away. It is in infinite variety everywhere in the world he has created, in Much Ado About Nothing, twice in As You Like It, in The Tempest, in Hamlet, in Measure for Measure, and in all the other plays which I have not read. He laughed to free his mind from his mind's bondage. Judge Englinton summed up. The truth is midway, he affirmed. He is the ghost and the prince. He is all in all. He is, Stephen said. The boy of Act One is the mature man of Act Five. All in all. In Cymbeline, in Othello, he is bawd and cuckold. He acts and is acted on. Lover of an ideal or a perversion. Like Jose, he kills the real Carmen. His unremitting intellect is the horn-mad Iago, ceaselessly willing that the moor in him shall suffer. Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Cuck Mulligan clucked lewdly. Oh, word of fear! Dark dome received, riverbed. And what a character is Iago! Undaunted John Eglinton exclaimed, When all is said, Dumas fils, or is it Dumas père, is right. After God, Shakespeare has created most. Man delights him not, nor woman neither, Stephen said. He returns after a life of absence to that spot of earth where he was born, where he has always been, man and boy, a silent witness, and there, his journey of life ended, he plants his mulberry tree in the earth, then dies, the motion is ended, Gravediggers bury Hamlet, Pear, and Hamlet feasts, a king and a prince at last in death, with incidental music, and what though murdered and betrayed, be wept by all frail tender hearts, for, Dane or Dubliner, sorrow for the dead is the only husband from whom they refuse to be divorced. If you like the epilogue, look long on it. Prosperous, Prospero, the good man rewarded, Lizzie, the grandpa's lump of love, and Uncle Richie, the bad man taken off by poetic justice to the place where the bad niggers go. Strong curtain. He found in the world without, as actual, what was in his world within, as possible. Maeterlinck says, If Socrates leave his house today, he will find the sage seated on his doorstep. If Judas go forth tonight, it is to Judas his steps will tend. Every life is many days, day after day. We walk through ourselves, meeting robbers, ghosts, giants, old men, young men, wives, widows, brothers in love, but always meeting ourselves. The playwright who wrote the folio of this world, and wrote it badly, he gave us light first and the sun two days later, the lord of things as they are, whom the most Roman of Catholics call Dio Boya, hangman God, is doubtless all in all, in all of us, ostler and butcher, and would be bawd and cuckold too, but that in the economy of heaven, foretold by Hamlet, there are no more marriages, glorified man, an androgynous angel, being a wife unto himself. Eureka! Buck Mulligan cried. Eureka! Suddenly happied, he jumped up and reached in a stride John Eglinton's desk. May I, he said, 
The Lord has spoken to Malachi. He began to scribble on a slip of paper. Take some slips from the counter before going out. Those who are married, Mr. Best, Douse Herald said, all save one, shall live. The rest shall keep as they are. He laughed, unmarried, at Eglinton Johannes, of arts a bachelor. Unwed, unfancied, wary of wiles, they finger-ponder nightly each his very orum edition of the taming of the shrew. You are a delusion, said roundly John Eglinton to Stephen. You have brought us all this way to show us a French triangle. Do you believe your own theory? No, Stephen said promptly. Are you going to write it? Mr. Best asked. You ought to make it a dialogue, don't you know, like the platonic dialogues Wilde wrote. John Eclecticon doubly smiled. Well, in that case, he said, I don't see why you should expect payment for it, since you don't believe it yourself. Dowden believes there is some mystery in Hamlet, but will say no more. Er bleeb true, the man Piper met in Berlin, who is working up that Rutland theory, believes that the secret is hidden in the Stratford Monument. He is going to visit the present Duke, Piper says, and prove to him that his ancestor wrote the plays. It will come as a surprise to his grace, but he believes his theory. I believe, O Lord, help my unbelief. That is, help me to believe, or help me to unbelieve. Who helps to believe? Ego men. Who to unbelieve? Other chap. You are the only contributor to Dana who asks for pieces of silver. Then I don't know about the next number. Fred Ryan wants space for an article on economics. Fredrine. Two pieces of silver he lent me. Tied you over. Economics. For a guinea, Stephen said, you can publish this interview. Buck Mulligan stood up from his laughing, scribbling, laughing, and then gravely said, honeying malice, I called upon the barred Kinch at his summer residence in Upper Mecklenburg Street and found him deep in the study of the Summa Contra Gentiles in the company of two gonorrheal ladies, Fresh Nellie and Rosalie the Colquay Whore. He broke away. Come, Kinch, come, wandering Angus of the birds. Come, Kinch, you have eaten all we left. Aye, I will serve you your orts and offals. Stephen rose. Life is many days. This will end. We shall see you tonight, John Eglinton said. Notre ami more, says Malachi Mulligan, must be there. Buck Mulligan flaunted his slip in Panama. Monsieur Moore, he said, lecturer on French letters to the youth of Ireland. I'll be there. Come, Kinch, the bards must drink. Can you walk straight? Laughing, he swill till eleven. Irish night's entertainment. Lubber. Stephen followed a lubber. One day in the National Library we had a discussion. Shakes. After. His lub back. I followed. I gall his kibe. Stephen, greeting, then all amort, followed a lubber jester, a well-kempt head, new-barbered, out of the vaulted cell, into a shattering daylight of no thought. What have I learned? Of them. Of me. Walk like Haynes now the constant reader's room. In the reader's book, Cashel Boyle, O'Connor, Fitzmaurice, Tisdall, Farrell, parafes his polysyllables. Item. Was Hamlet mad? The Quakers pate gaudily with a priest-teen in book talk. Oh, please do, sir. I shall be most pleased. Amused Buck Mulligan mused in pleasant murmur with himself, self-nodding. A pleased bottom. The turnstile. Is that? Blue-ribboned hat. Idly writing. What? Looked. The curving balustrade, smooth-sliding Mincius. Puck Mulligan, Panama helmeted, went step by step, iambing, trolling. 
John Eglinton, my Joe, John, why won't you wed a wife? He spluttered to the air. Oh, the chinless Chinaman, Chin Chong Eglinton. We went over to their play box, Haynes and I, the plumber's hall. Our players are creating a new art for Europe like the Greeks or M. Metterlink. Abbey Theatre, I smell the public sweat of monks. He spat blank. Forgot. Any more than he forgot the whipping lousy Lucy gave him. And left the femme de trente ans. And why no other children born? And his first child a girl. After wit, go back. The dour recluse still there. He has his cake. And the douse youngling, minion of pleasure, Fido's toyable fair hair. Eh, hey, I just, eh, wanted, I forgot, he. Longworth and McCurdy Atkinson were there. Puck Mulligan footed featly, trilling. I hardly hear the purlieu cry, or a Tommy talk as I pass one by, before my thoughts begin to run on F. McMurdy Atkinson, and the same that had the wooden leg, and that filibustering filibeg, that never dared to slake his drouth, McGee that had the chinless mouth, being afraid to marry on earth, they masturbated for all they were worth. Jest on, know thyself. Halted below me, a quizzer looks at me. I halt. Mournful mummer, Buck Mulligan moaned. Singe has left off wearing black to be like nature. Only crows, priests, and English coal are black. A laugh tripped over his lips. Longworth is awfully sick, he said, after what you wrote about that old hake, Gregory. Oh, you inquisitional drunken Jew Jesuit. She gets you a job on the paper, and then you go and slate her drivel to Jesus. Couldn't you do the Yates touch? He went on and down, mopping, chanting, with waving graceful arms. The most beautiful book that has come out of our country in my time. One thinks of Homer. He stopped at the stairfoot. I have conceived a play for the mummers, he said solemnly. The pillared Moorish hall, shadows entwined, Gone the nine men's Morris with caps of indices. In sweetly varying voices Buck Mulligan read his tablet. Every man his own wife, or a honeymoon in the hand, A National Immorality in Three Orgasms, by Balaki Mulligan. He turned a happy patch's smirk to Stephen, saying, The disguise, I fear, is thin. But listen. He read, Marcato. Characters. Toady Tostoff, a ruined pole. Crab, a bush ranger. Medical Dick and Medical Davy, two birds with one stone. Mother Grogan, a water carrier. Fresh Nellie and Rosalie, the coal-quay whore. He laughed, lolling a to-and-fro head, walking on, followed by Stephen. And mirthfully he told the shadows, souls of men. Oh, the night in Camden Hall when the daughters of Aaron had to lift their skirts to step over you as you lay in your mulberry-colored, multicolored, multitudinous vomit. The most innocent son of Aaron, Stephen said, for whom they ever lifted them. About to pass through the doorway, feeling one behind, he stood aside. Part. The moment is now. Where, then? If Socrates leave his house today, if Judas go forth tonight. Why? That lies in space, which I, in time, must come to, ineluctably. My will, his will that fronts me, sees between. A man passed out between them, bowing, greeting. Good day again, Buck Mulligan said. The portico. Here I watched the birds for augury. Ingus of the birds. They go, they come. Last night I flew. Easily flew. Men wondered. Street of harlots after. A cream-fruit melon he held to me. In. You will see. 
the wandering Jew, Buck Mulligan whispered with clown's awe. Did you see his eye? He looked upon you to lust after you. I fear thee, ancient mariner. O Kinch, thou art in peril. Get thee a breech-pad. Manor of Oxenford. Day. Wheelbarrow, sun, over arch of bridge. A dark back went before them, step of a pard, down, out by the gateway, under portcullis barbs. They followed. Offend me still. Speak on. Kind air defined the coins of houses in Kildare Street. No birds. Frail from the housetops, two plumes of smoke ascended, pluming, and in a flaw of softness softly were blown. Cease to strive. Peace of the druid priests of Cymbeline, hierophantic, from wide earth on altar. Laud we the gods, and let our crooked smokes climb to their nostrils from our blessed altars. End of section 16 Read by Richard Wallace, Liberty, Missouri, June 16, 2011